October 26, 2012. The governor of New York has declared a state of emergency, and the president has signed a disaster declaration. Public transportation will be suspended, and major infrastructure will be closed. Hurricane Sandy is bearing down on New York City. The city's 8 million residents live at risk of the impacts of tropical cyclones. In a changing climate, how will these impacts and the general behavior of these systems evolve? The answer to these questions, expert testimony, and more are coming up. My name is Aidan Mahoney, and I study atmospheric science at Cornell University. I lived through Hurricane Sandy at my home in northern Westchester County, a suburb of New York City. The damage in my hometown was unimaginable, and coastal communities endured much worse. The occurrence of Hurricane Sandy contributed to my fascination with the atmosphere and our weather. Tropical cyclones are storms that form over warm ocean water and can produce strong winds, heavy rain, and storm surge flooding. Tropical cyclone is the most general term for tropical depressions, tropical storms, and hurricanes. Projections for global warming of 2 degrees Celsius predict that the amount of tropical cyclones will not change. However, the portion of storms which reach Category 4 and 5 status globally will increase by about 13%. So, we expect to see more tropical cyclones globally reaching higher intensity, but the amount of tropical cyclones to remain the same. The factor most closely associated with tropical cyclone strength is wind. However, flooding exceeded wind as the second highest cause of weather-related deaths in the United States in 2018. Flooding from storm surge in which tropical cyclones push water on shore already presents a dangerous situation to coastal residents. In New York City, 400,000 residents are in the 1% annual chance floodplain. To view current flood zones, visit maps.nyc.gov hurricane. With 11 to 21 inches of sea level rise projected by the year 2050, storm surge flooding will spread further inland. Additionally, rainfall rates are projected to increase by 14%, increasing the likelihood of flooding beyond coastal areas. During Hurricane Sandy, storm surge exceeded 13 feet above sea level. This was high enough to flood 51 square miles of New York City and disrupt critical infrastructure, including the subway system, which floods at a storm surge of 10 and a half feet. Faced with this problem, how can both the government and residents of New York City work to mitigate the impacts? With coastal flooding of paramount concern, efforts should focus on this threat. Since Hurricane Sandy in 2012, which served as a wake-up call for policymakers and coastal residents affected, regulations have been strengthened at all levels of government and engineering initiatives have been examined and undertaken. Perhaps the most major project? A seawall will be built along most of the Staten Island coastline, capable of withstanding coastal flooding of 15.6 feet, two feet higher than that caused by Hurricane Sandy. Projects such as this will save lives and protect property. I spoke with Helen Chang, 
a coastal resiliency specialist at New York Sea Grant and the Science and Resiliency Institute at Jamaica Bay. She focuses on enhancing coastal resilience and bringing science to the coastal communities affected through outreach. Chang also created the Jamaica Bay podcast series and was featured this past January on locally sourced science. Some of the work I've done with uh, New York Sea Grant, the Science Resilience Institute at Jamaica Bay, really revolve around this idea of bringing uh, different groups together and sharing information, tools, and resources with each other. So I've had programs in the layout of a forum where we have an event down in the community and we bring expertise like emergency managers, weather experts, city agencies even, and talking with communities about a specific coastal topic like flooding, for example. And so we'll invite these um, folks down, the community comes out and it really is this dialogue that happens between diverse groups and then sharing ideas and perspectives with each other. Another type of program I've been a part of is bringing climate education to the youth from like middle school, high school, implementing a curriculum that was developed by teachers for teachers in terms of climate education, as well as climate resiliency. And so that was a really great program that we had that I was a part of. And then one other program that I'm currently working on is a citizen community program where we encourage residents to document and report flooding in their coastal communities. That way we have really ground truth, the data on flood risk and flood risk models, as well as raise awareness of coastal flooding in some of our communities. And so it's this positive feedback loop of information and exchange. That uh, project called the Jamaica Bay Flood Watch Project started in 2018, and it's really been going strong since then. It's great that there are these programs that bridge the gap between scientists and the general public, because that's often can be one of the largest divides in society. Absolutely. You hit it on the <laughs> you hit it right, uh, right where the, the heart is, is that oftentimes these groups are sort of sitting in isolation. And my role is to really bring these groups together, bridge the gap, and just foster partnerships and collaborations amongst these groups to work on a issue that pertains to all these groups, whether you're a community member or a scientist or someone who works in city government, it, it all has an impact. Excellent. And this leads right into my next question. What is your biggest concern for coastal communities in a changing climate and why? So in my opinion, the biggest concern is really apathy, that that we're not having these discussions or that there's sort of this ignoring of the problem. And I think, you know, the with a changing climate, we have seen events that really impact the way that we all live, whether it is the day-to-day, what should I wear, the fluctuations in temperature, to the more events like strong storms and, and hurricanes even. And so not thinking about them or even just trying to ignore the problem is not, it's not productive. And I think we need to think about these things together as well as for me to translate the science that's happening to make it usable for communities 
so that they are feel empowered to take action or at least do something. A lot of the communities I work with experience flooding once or even twice a month. October was a very active month for flooding because we had lots of offshore nor'easters that while it didn't directly impact us, it definitely brought a lot of coastal flooding. To ignore that is a really big concern <laughs> for me. Um, and I want people to feel empowered that they can do something. And that's why we have these programs to bring knowledge to people, bring information to people so that they feel empowered to, to do something about an issue that can have an impact on the way they live. Now, you touched a little bit about communicating the ongoing science, and I was wondering specifically, how do you communicate the uncertainty about certain projections? That is a very great question. And it's really, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is addressing that uncertainty. We're not trying to make people paranoid, <laughs> but we want people to, to, to think about preparedness. So you've been talking about communicating these resilience efforts to the communities. Do you think there's a time limit on these efforts? I'm wondering, do you think there's a threshold at which it will be too late to become resilient at the level that we need? I think it's really hard to put a time limit on things. Like you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of uncertainty with climate science. But I think the most important thing is that we're seeing the impacts of a changing climate now. We've seen more frequent flooding. We've seen more variability in seasons. And so I think we need to really take the time to address those things now, because what we do now is going to impact the way we do things in the future. Often we see that disasters become an impetus for future change. One such disaster that comes straight to my mind is Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Why do you think Hurricane Sandy served as a wake-up call for policymakers and coastal residents? At the time, there wasn't really a firm grasp on how severe this storm was. Personally, having grown up in New York City, I often never thought about a hurricane hitting New York because that's something we heard in the Southeast, in the Gulf Coast. And I think that was a similar sentiment for a lot of other people. Many options to increase coastal resiliency are beyond the resources of an individual, with governments and municipalities essentially footing the bill. Are there any actions that property owners can take individually to boost their resilience? So I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you on that question. I think there are a lot of resources out there for an individual, but I do think if a community comes together, so many individuals coming together, there can be things that can be done to boost their resiliency. There's a lot of research that shows that social cohesion brings about community resilience. In terms of actions, I think it's getting to know your neighbor, maybe sharing stories about different experiences with climate, whether it's flooding or heat or, or extreme snowfall, et cetera. That conversation becomes louder and it empowers people to take action, whether it's being more vocal about what should happen in their community or being vocal about what things need to get done. 
yes, as an individual, it may seem hopeless, but if you have many individuals coming together who have the same similar um, sentiments, I think that can be really powerful. New York has risen to and succeeded at every challenge it faced. Improving our coastal resilience will be no different. I'm Aidan Mahoney, and thank you for listening. To learn more about me, please visit www.aidendennismahoney.com.